Shavua Tov, Chavarim. This is John Parsons with Hebrew for Christians, and I am here to wish you a great week as you seek to know the truth of God and to honor the Lord in your avodat halev, your service of the heart, as you show yourself approved before God in the study and love of His Torah, His Word, His revelation, and our beloved Messiah. May this be a time in your life where you are drawing close. You are applying all that you have. You're loving God, bechol levavcha, with all your being, your essence, your will, and drawing close to him. May this be a time of growth for you and blessing and strength. And may it be so in the name of Yeshua, the great Lord and Messiah and Savior of all. Blessed be he. We're in the midst of the book of Exodus following the story of how the people of Israel were delivered by God's hand during the great Passover redemption and then were led into the desert of Zin to receive the Torah from the Lord. Now exactly seven weeks after the exodus from Egypt, that is 49 days after the great Passover, Moses gathered the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai to enter into covenant with the Lord. We commemorate this special time every year during the holiday of Shavuot, called Weeks or Pentecost, as we recall the tongues of fire that were revealed both at Sinai and later at Zion after the time of Yeshua's resurrection. You can read about that in Acts chapters 1 and 2 in our New Testament. Now the Kotzer Rebbe asked, Why is Shavuot or Pentecost called Zaman Matan Tortenu, that is the time of the giving of our Torah, rather than Zaman Kabbalat Tortenu, the time of receiving the Torah? And the reason is that on that momentous day at Sinai, only the giving of the Torah occurred, whereas the receiving of Torah must take place each and every day. As it says, Trust in the Lord, Bechol Libecha, that is, with all your heart, and know Him, Bechol Derechecha, in all your ways. The giving of Torah is described as a loud and never-ending voice in Devarim 5.19, though it's our constant responsibility to Shema, to receive the invitation of God's heart. In this connection, note that the Passover Haggadah states each person in every generation must regard himself or herself as having been personally set free from Egypt, and that the liberation includes being present at the revelation of Torah at Sinai, and I would add later at Zion, and that means opening your heart to God's presence. Some people get confused about some of the nuances in the, the scriptures about the meaning of words like Torah, Mishpatim, and so on. I'll get to that in a little bit. But when asked about how many commandments are in the Torah, most Jews answer 613 based on Jewish tradition. The number 613 is sometimes called Taryag. That's an abbreviation for the letters Tav, which is 400, Resh, which is 200, Yod, 10, and Gimel, which is 3, equaling 613. Now, despite several attempts made over the centuries, however, there's never been a definitive list of these 613 commandments. And of those who have tried to compile such a list, no two agree. You can read on the Hebrew for Christians website an article I wrote called Taryag Mitzvot, which runs through the 613 commandments and some of the permutations of the sages, such as Maimonides and others, trying to understand the listing of the commandments found in Torah. Some say the number 613 comes from a fanciful midrash that teaches that since there are 365 solar days in a year, this corresponds to the 365 negative commandments, and there are 248 parts of the body, or at least they say so in the, in the Talmud, this corresponds to the positive commandments. Therefore, put those two ideas together. Every day, we should use our bodies to serve God. As I said, that's a fanciful midrash or commentary, sort of homiletical and speculative, of course, but 
Regardless of the exact count, the Talmud does follow the Apostle Paul by understanding all of the Torah's commandments to be derived from the Ten Commandments, called the Fathers of the Commandments, given at Sinai, the most basic of which is, of course, the first commandment, namely, I am the Lord your God, Anochi Adonai Lehecha. And this is the foundational commandment that was later restated by the prophet Habakkuk as, Betzadik ba'emunato yichyeh. The righteous shall live by faith. You can read about that in Habakkuk 2.4. This is also quoted in Galatians 3.11, Hebrews 10.38 in our New Testaments. In other words, as I've said many times before, all of the commandments of God come down to our sacred duty to receive the truth of God's love, to be connected with God. Anochi Adonai Elohecha. As I've also mentioned in other places, the Hebrew word mitzvah is really about our connection to God. The Hebrew root, savah, means to bind or unite. So the whole point of a commandment is to bind our hearts to the Lord in response to his love. So there's a connecting impulse that's at work here in the imperative language of Scripture. If you miss that, you're going to see this as an alien thing. And the very first commandment, therefore, as the starting point for all that follows, is that the Lord is your God. You understand him to be your deliverer and king. You connect with him on those terms, and the rest of the commandments are therefore expressions of your heart's desire to, to draw close to him. And we'll talk more about that as we go on here. Okay, so let's get to our Torah portion for this week. It's called Parsha Mishpatim, a word that means rules or judgments or sometimes laws in Hebrew. And I want you to recall what we read last week concerning the revelation of the Ten Commandments and how the people drew back in fear. And so they begged Moses to be their sole intercessor between the Lord and the people. Now this portion begins with Moses being called back up to Sinai again, this time for 40 days and nights, where God is going to teach him these details of the laws and rules of the Torah. And you can read about this now in your Bibles, beginning in the book of Exodus chapter 21, verse 1, through chapter 24, verse 18. Now, before we get into this, let's recite the customary Hebrew blessing. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher kedishanu b'mitzvotah v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah, which may be interpreted as, Blessed are you, Lord our God, Master of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commandments and commands us to be soaked up in the words of Torah. Amen. Last week's Torah portion, namely Parshat Yitro, explain that exactly seven weeks after the great exodus from Egypt, that is 49 days later, Moses gathered the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai to enter into covenant with the Lord. In a dramatic display of thunder, lightning, billowing smoke and fire, the Lord descended upon the mountain and recited the Ten Commandments to the people. Upon hearing the law's moral requirements, however, the people shrank back in fear and begged Moses to be their mediator before God. The people then stood afar off while Moses alone drew near to the thick darkness to receive Torah from the Lord. Now that again is last week's Torah reading. This week's reading, Mishpatim, begins with Moses in the midst of this thick darkness receiving the additional instructions regarding the various civil laws for the Israelite people. The sages here count at least 53 distinct commandments listed in this portion of Torah, making it one of the most legalistic or law-heavy sections of the entire Bible. Civil laws, liability laws, criminal laws, agricultural laws, financial laws, family purity laws, Sabbath laws, health laws, and holiday laws are all given 
in this portion. Now, sometimes when we're reading so much scripture about laws, we can get a little bit weary from the litany of what we're reading, and it's easy to pass by things that are really important to hear. And one of these things comes from our Torah reading this week, where it says, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I've written for their instruction. That's from Exodus 24, verse 12. Now, in this verse, the Hebrew words ve'esham usually would be translated and wait there, but it can also be translated as and be there. But why, if every jot and tittle of Torah is indeed significant, as Yeshua said, Matthew 5.18, why does the text say come up to the mountain and then add the superfluous phrase and be there? The sages answered that God is asking Moses to be present, to be awake, and to be utterly focused with all his heart, soul, and might. And this is to teach us that to receive Torah, or God's revelation, we need to show up and be there, earnestly seeking his heart. So in light of that, may the Lord help us be present before him, to be awake, to be alert, to be mindful, and to receive the truth of his Torah. Amen. So Moses is upon the mountain, 40 days and 40 nights, and after he's received all these additional laws and received explanation from the Lord about the meaning of these laws and the subset all the Ten Commandments and all the permutations and mishpatim and so on, he descends from Sinai and goes before the people to tell them all the words of the Lord. Now, upon hearing the details, all the people responded in unison, Kol Adonai All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses then wrote down the words of the covenant into a separate scroll. Now, this is the Sefer Habrit I mentioned many times in the Hebrew for Christians website. This is important to understand this. Torah does not equal Sefer Habrit. Torah is bigger than the idea of this Sefer Habrit, although Sefer Habrit is a part or subset of the Torah. In other words, if you have two logical circles or classes, one called Torah and another called Brit Sinai, or in this case Sefer Habrit, these would overlap only in a small portion, namely that portion that deals with the covenant that was given at Sinai, and therefore, we can conclude and infer that not all Torah equals Sefer Habrit. This is the mistake of rabbinical Judaism. Torah is bigger than this idea of Sefer Habrit, although it is a part of it. And the a greater covenant of God, the new covenant, embraces it and yet transcends it by means of a special grace given in Messiah. We'll learn more about that in a little bit. So Moses then wrote down the words of this covenant into a separate scroll. Again, this is Sefer Habrit. He built an altar at the foot of Sinai and ordered sacrifices to the Lord to be made. He then took the sacrificial blood from the offerings, threw half on the altar, and read the scroll of the covenant to the people. The people ratified the covenant by saying, All that the Lord has said we will do, and now they added, and obey. Upon hearing this, Moses took the other half of the sacrificial blood and threw it on the people, saying, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you according with all these words. After this, Moses, Aaron, and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel ascended Mount Sinai, and there ate a covenant affirmation meal between the Lord and the people of Israel. After returning from the mountain with the elders, the Lord commanded Moses to go back up again to receive the tablets of stone inscribed with the Ten Commandments. On the seventh day there, he heard the voice of the Lord calling to him from the midst of the cloud of glory, and then he entered into the presence of the Lord. He remained on the mountain for a total of 40 days and nights, while the Israelites waited for him at the camp below. 
Okay, so that gives us a brief overview of our Torah reading for this week. And now let's dig in and ask some further questions about this reading to get some more insight. First, let's define some terms, though. What does Torah mean? Well, it comes from a Hebrew root, yara, which means to aim or focus. And it, it generally means direction or teaching. It does not mean law, as is commonly taught by many Christian teachers, at least has been taught by the Christian church for many, many years. So this is an important distinction. Torah does not equal law. It's a much broader category than the idea of law. Unfortunately, in the New Testament, the Greek word namas is used sort of promiscuously to refer to both the idea of direction and principle and also the Ten Commandments and the specifics of the written Torah. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but for now, understand that Torah is a general term and it's bigger than just the idea of law. Second, what is Torah Shebichtav? Well, that just means Torah that's written or that which is written. It refers to the text that has been meticulously transmitted since the time of Moses in the form of a Sefer Torah, which is a kosher Torah scroll. Third, what does the word mitzvah mean? Well, I mentioned at the beginning the idea is bound up with the idea of connection, but it generally means commandment or an opportunity to serve God. And, and by, again, by that I mean the ability to connect with God and become a partner with God in expressing the truth of God through your life. So that's really what the idea of mitzvah refers to. Now the plural of the word mitzvah is mitzvot, and in the Torah there are three basic categories of mitzvot. There's the category of mishpatim, which is the name of our Torah portion, which refers to logical or um, judicial laws or rules. The second is chukim, which comes from chok. It means a decree or a fiat law. It's an irrational, and or better yet, super rational law or decree, the classic example being the law of the red heifer, which doesn't appeal to us rationally, like the commandment, thou shalt not steal, but nevertheless is a law of God, and so it's called hukim. And finally, edot. These are testimonials, things like keeping moedim, keeping Sabbath, keeping the, the commandments of God pertaining to a witness of God, giving testimony to God's reality by choosing to live a life and obeying these commandments that express the truth of God's faithfulness. So the word mishpatim again means law, rule, and or judgment. Sometimes it's called judgment. And it's derived from this Hebrew word shafat, which means to judge. An example again is not to steal or lie. If you cannot universalize an action, then it's going to be considered irrational, as Immanuel Kant taught. But this is the idea that's sort of embedded in the idea of mishpatim, the shafat, which we get the word shoftim from which is a judge. It's a rational idea in which ideas can be ethical norms and morals can be universalized and expressed as the will of God through rational means. Okay, another question is, are all people intended to keep all the commandments? And the answer is, surprisingly, no. Some commandments pertain only to women, such as Nida, purity laws, and so on. Others only to priests or Levites, others to kings others to farmers doing agricultural work in the land, others to tribal inheritances. Obviously, these things don't apply to us all. And so it's not necessarily literally true that whoever breaks one of the commandments breaks the whole law in the sense of breaking all the commandments of God because many of these commandments don't apply to us. So when we read in the book of James, for example, that whoever offends the law at one point 
breaks all of it, he's referring to the principle and the guilt that comes from breaking the law of God, that it's universal in scope and not necessarily literally every single law. Finally, what is Torah Shabal Pei? Now, this is what is called oral law or oral Torah, Torah which is oral, and it refers to the legal and interpretive traditions handed down by word of mouth until these were codified in the Mishnah and Gemara or the Talmud, but before that in the discussions of the sages from Ezra the scribe and the 70 elders and so on, and that comes from Moses himself. Remember, Yitro advised him to set up judges, and there was a 70 elders of Israel that had been there from the very beginning with, with Israel. So some examples might include things like this. Uh, Moses was given the pattern on the mountain of the altar, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and yet there aren't specific instructions about how to build these things other than just basic general things. You're given cubits, which are imprecise measurements of about 18 inches about some of the furnishings, but no explicit instructions about how to make them. For example, it says the menorah was to be beaten with beaten of pure gold, but there's no real description about how to do that and what it's ultimately going to look like. And so that came through some things in oral tradition. Other examples of oral tradition would include laws of the scribes and how they were to transfer and transmit the Torah, the written Torah. We see this also in the Masra and the tradition of the adding of the Nikudot or the vowel points to the Torah text. These things come down to us, and they are part of Torah, but they're a subset of the bigger idea of Torah. This is the oral Torah. This is the tradition. This is the surrounding sort of atmosphere of Torah by which we can learn the meaning of Torah. There's a lot of cases like this where we have to rely on other factors than just what's expressed in the written Torah. The Torah doesn't come with its own dictionary, for example, so we have to see how words were used at the time in which this was written to get a better idea of its application for us and how we're to translate it into our target language. So I hope that makes some sense. Another term that sometimes comes up is midrash. Now midrash is just, in general, commentary. I like to think of it just as commentary, although it refers to an exegetical method that uses stories, allegories, speculation, rather than literal reading of text, grammatical, historical reading to further explain the Bible and its, its meaning. So collections of Midrashim are considered part of the Jewish oral tradition, and some Midrash are homiletical, others are legal, but in either case, they are not considered to be authoritative. So when, for example, I say the Midrash says X, it doesn't mean that I'm saying this has the authority of Scripture. I hope you understand that. It's right up there with just good, solid biblical commentary, or sometimes fanciful Bible commentary. But regardless, it's part of the tradition and the dialogue that's taken place over the centuries among Jews about the meaning of their texts. Finally, what does the word halakha mean? Halakha. Well, it literally means the way to walk or to apply the commandments in everyday life. Traditional halakha includes takanot, or case law, from the Beit Deans or the Judges, Gezerot, which are restrictions often put in place by rabbis, and minhagim, which are customs. And these correspond to the three categories of the mitzvot found in the written Torah. So case law refers to mishpatim, gezerot refers to the chukim, and the minhagim refers to the edot, or the testimonies. So 
for more information about these terms and the nuances that are required to really truly honestly look at what Torah means, please see the Hebrew for Christians website and look for the article entitled Taryag Mitzvot. Also look for articles discussing oral law and tradition because these are factors that do affect us in our lives, regardless of people who say, all I need is Jesus and my Bible. There's a lot more to understanding the scriptures. It's not given in a vacuum. There's a continuity here that we need to appreciate and are indebted to, to really fully savor the revelation of God. Now, I don't want to belabor the issue, but I want to repeat again that the Hebrew word mitzvah generally means divine commandment or blessing, since it represents our need for God's connection and presence. The various mitzvot found in the Torah are further divided into these subcategories of chukim umishpatim. You can read about this in Deuteronomy 4, 5. That's where that term or those phrases come from. Chukim are the statutes given without reason. They're divine decrees, if you will. The classic example being the decree of the red heifer, which, as legend has it, defied even the wisdom of King Solomon to understand. Mishpatim, on the other hand, are laws given for a discernible reason. They're logical laws. An example would be the commandment to give charity or prohibitions against theft and murder. These mitzvot are inherently rational and appeal to the need for civil and moral order. The relationship between Chukim and Mishpatim, or faith and reason, is highly interdependent, however, and the sages ultimately concluded that every commandment, regardless of its type, may be regarded as if it were a decree given without a reason at all. In other words, all Mishpatim may be reduced to the status of Chukim. This is because... A merely rational acceptance of religion is insufficient to touch the heart of faith. We do not understand to believe, but the other way around. A person who thinks it's reasonable to obey one commandment might later change his or her mind if their passion sways them to suddenly regard it as irrational. So no, we should obey God simply because God asks us to trust him. We believe to understand. That's the great example. The great example being Akidah, or the binding of Isaac, when Abraham willingly offers up his son, on the altar as a sacrifice. You can read about that in Genesis 22. Abraham surely understood all the commandments and decrees and laws of God, as it says in Genesis 26, 5, but his faith led him to surrender his need to understand in his devotion to God. Abraham's Torah was that of faith, it's written, and he believed in the Lord and accounted and God counted it to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. That's one of the key verses of all the Bible. Surrendering our ego's reasoning as absolute, by yielding to the wisdom of the Lord, is the essential decree of the entire Torah, in other words. So don't lose sight of that important principle as you read the Bible. Now, in connection with our Torah reading for this week, we read the following. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. That's from Exodus 24:17. And Some people regard this fire as a sign of a threat, a sign of God's judgment, though it's certainly better to regard it as a sign of God's glorious passion. After all, it was the pillar of fire that led the people out of bondage, just as it later dwelt between the cherubim upon the Ark of the Covenant. Indeed, the fire that fell upon the followers of Yeshua at Pentecost, or Shavuot, was the same manifestation of the glory of God's passionate love that was revealed at Sinai. Our God is called a consuming fire, a shoklah, which means that he's full of passion and zeal, that your heart fully belongs to him. I was recently reading in John Bunyan's classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress, about how a character named Worldly Wise Man attempted to seduce our hero Christian off the path to the narrow gate 
to abide in the village of morality and to seek teaching from a man named Mr. Legality. Later, after Christian realized his error, Evangelist is brought on the scene to chastise him for his negligence. Sadly, however, Bunyan's idea that the law represents only a curse is misleading, since, as we all know, Torah reaches further than the concept of legality and rule following, as I've mentioned already. However, a greater problem comes from Bunyan's mistaken theology of Torah, and that is that he that that invites a Christian to disregard the meaning and message of Torah and lead to flee from it, despite the fact that without Torah, we could have no narrow gate or righteousness of God or salvation or even the cross of Messiah, since all these things derive from the message of Torah itself, not from the subset of the Sinai Covenant called Sefer Habrid, as I mentioned before. Moreover, and this is huge, the giving of the law does not end with the covenant to obey its terms by all people. All that the Lord has said we will do and obey. Remember that? But rather with the vision of the altar, that's the Mishkan or tabernacle, which enshrined the sacrificial lamb of God who would come. By derogating the law, by putting it down, as Bunyan and many Christian thinkers have done, this point is lost and the full counsel of God's word is lost. Exegetical errors abound and many are confused and led astray, paradoxically by people like Bunyan who seek to expose those who teach the law as seducers. So be on guard. The law is holy and just and good. Paul said that our faith establishes the law in the book of Romans. So we're not anti-Torah. We should never be anti-Torah. Yeshua was the voice speaking from the midst of the fire. He is always the word of God. So the law of God is good and holy and just and reveals his character. And we are called to receive that character and become more conformed to it as we progress in our walk with God. That said, there is a difference in means of attaining holiness. And the older former covenant, Brit Yashana, relied on the affirmation of the people, the pledge of the people, that all that they, the Lord has said they would do. This, however, was a failed confession. And later, the law functioned as a mirror to reveal our sin. But this was still embedded within the Torah itself, even the Torah that was given at Sinai, because again, the altar was revealed at Sinai. In other words, there is no plague that God brings without the cure. And so even the plague, the curses of the law, the tochacha, find healing in the Messiah. And that's embedded there at Sinai. To think otherwise is really to make a cartoon out of Sinai, like, you know, Jars of Clay has a song that says that God came to put out Sinai's fire. No, that's not true. This is a distinction I've seen many times and heard it even from the pulpit at churches I've been at, where the law is construed as this bad thing and that we have to flee from it and escape from its judgment rather than understanding that the law is good and the problem is with the human heart. The Torah written on the heart is what the meaning of the new covenant is in Jeremiah. So we receive the Holy Spirit to help us keep Torah, to help us know the heart of God, and to walk in his ways. That is the essence of the new covenant. It's not anti-Torah. It's the fulfillment of the Torah by the agency of the Holy Spirit on our behalf through a miracle of grace. That's what the new covenant Torah is about. But it doesn't destroy the law of the prophets, as Jesus said in Matthew 5. It transcends it by taking it up and sort of making it empowered by a greater power that is by God himself, working in the heart of faith and 
through the bestowal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. So may God do that work in us. Well, of course, a lot more could be said about this week's Torah reading, and I have a lot of information on the Hebrew for Christians website, including the Shabbat Table Talk that I encourage you to download. It's free. You can go through the text of this Torah portion and look at some of the Hebrew subtleties and insights that you won't get through reading other commentaries. So I hope you'll take some time to take a look at that. I also have a number of articles I've written over the years on Parshat Mishpatim that I hope you'll find helpful. It's a multifaceted Torah portion, and the whole interplay between imperative language and love language is huge. There's so much to this. It's the same dialectic we have between the fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord and the sort of tension that we have, God's transcendence and his imminence. All these paradoxes and antinomies working together to instill within us that holy tension and suspense and mystery and excitement as we walk out our days with the Lord. So Parshat Mishpatim has a lot to say to us, friends. Study it. We live in a world of anarchy and lawlessness. It's only getting worse as the days get darker. So let's be people of Torah, of truth, who uphold the light of God, the transcendental truth of God, and walk as his children in this perverse world. Let's affirm the truth that there is an order of reality, a two-tiered order of reality. There is a moral cause and effect in the universe. There is a moral source of um, imperative language and deontological ethics and all this sort of thing. There is a sacred center to all things, and that's found in Yeshua. And God's love makes that a part of our own reality. He stoops down, he imparts it to us, he gives us grace to take hold of it, to apprehend it, to walk in it. So, Lord God, please help us. Please help us because it's a struggle, God. It's a great struggle. Many of us are hurting, Lord. Many of us struggle through our days. And we live, again, in a world which is fallen. And we're living in a culture that denies you. And everywhere we turn, there's darkness and pain. So we look to you, Lord. Me, Whom have we in heaven but you? You are the source of all that we need, our light, our healing, our love. Only you can do the miracle in us, God. We just open our hearts to you. We ask that you would do in us the miracle, that you would change us, God, that you would put the Holy Spirit in us and renew us and equip us and empower us to be vessels of your grace in this dark world. So please, thank you for the Torah. Thank you for the truth of God. Thank you that you care that the, the meaning behind imperative is care. You love us. And that's why you warn us over and over again to take so seriously these things of moral truth because you care not just for us but the whole world. You love us and you gave yourself for us and we want to affirm that and walk as your people. So please help us, God. We ask this, Basham Yeshua Meshikenu Huhadon in Yeshua's name. Amen. And let me end with the great Hebrew blessing. Yevarechacha Hashem Yavishmarecha, Yair Adonai Panave Lecha Vikuneka, Yisa Adonai Panave Lecha Beesem Lecha Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his shalom, his healing love. Hashem Yeshua Meshichenu Huhadon. In the name of Jesus our Messiah, he is the Lord. Shavuatov, Chodeshtov. Every blessing in Messiah, be it on you, by faith, receive it now. Amen.
For more information, visit us at www.hebrewforchristians.com or Google Learn Hebrew Free.